Gracious God, we are excited to be here tonight to study your word, learning more about baptism, in particular infant baptism, uh, come to somewhat of a controversial subject, and we just need illumination. We need the Spirit to illumine the scriptures to our minds, to cut it straight, to get it right, to see it clearly. So we pray you help us this evening to do that. May we be humble with our brethren who uh, disagree and see differently, knowing this doesn't impact the gospel. We can still be united, even uh, apart from issues like this. We're still one in Christ, but we still want to get it right, so we just pray for your your grace and mercy upon us to study your word, rightly divide it, and uh, do what is right before you. So give us clarity and a blessed time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, like I said, we do have a bit to cover tonight, so we do need to get going and, and get moving. By way of a very brief recap, we've been studying baptism here on Sunday nights. The scripture has a lot to say about many different types of baptism, We've already covered all that. Now we're mostly focusing on water baptism, which is mostly what you think of when you think of baptism. And what does it mean? What does it signify? And really, what does it accomplish? Does water baptism actually do anything other than get the believer wet? It's in answering these questions that divides appear. That everyone believes there's some symbolism, you know, inherent to baptism. Yeah, it's symbolic. But beyond that, does it do anything? And so there's... The the different ways you answer that question, you see some divides appear. And there's three basic ways people answer the question, three categories or or camps. The sacramental view, the covenantal view, and the symbolic view. Last week, we covered the sacramental view, which is most represented by the Catholic Church. And their position is often referred to as baptismal regeneration. You might recall from last week. They believe baptism actually accomplishes the forgiveness of sins and regeneration. But we saw scripture does not support that, and that was last week. Today, we're going to turn our attention to the second major view of baptism significance, which is referred to as the covenantal view. And this covenantal view of baptism makes much as baptism being the sign and the seal of the new covenant, which that's not that controversial, but what's what's more contested is how they apply the sign of the new covenant to the children of new covenant members. And they believe the sign and the seal of baptism is not just for believers, but also for their children in parallel to circumcision in the Old Testament. And so practically what sets this view apart from the others is their practice of infant baptism. And so we often just refer to this view as, well, infant baptism. Of course, Catholics practice infant baptism, but just for totally other reasons, that's in connection with baptismal regeneration, all that stuff from last week. It's not what we're talking about here. And for Protestants who practice infant baptism, they're typically doing so for reasons associated with covenant theology, as we will see. It's most pronounced among Presbyterians and then other Reformed churches, Reformed denominations. And Christians who accept the baptizing of babies are often referred to as pedobaptists, whereas Christians who believe baptism is for confessing believers only are referred to as credo-baptists, like confession baptism. Anyway, just some terms. So that's a really basic introduction. We've got a lot, though, to include here to take this further, like we did with baptismal regeneration last week. So it's just kind of a summary of the covenantal view of baptism and try and let their supporters speak for themselves and explain for themselves, even defend their view for themselves. Let's just hear from them, like, what do they believe and why? 
and look at the theological and the biblical support for why they do this. But then we're going to finish with a critique of this view, explaining in detail why, at least for me, I'm not convinced, don't agree, either from their theological or their biblical arguments. It's kind of a big, muddled, in many ways, complicated issue. We're trying to put it all in like, you know, one hour here. So we're going to to do our best trying to simplify it to just the heart of the matter. There's a lot of noise swirling around the debate. We're going to kind of try it and just cut it to the heart of the issue and the disagreement. So let's see if we can do that. I do want to point out, though, before we get started, I don't believe infant baptism should be a heavily contentious issue. It matters because all truth matters. We want to get God's word right, and God's word is clear. But genuine believers sometimes disagree. And we can take this infant baptism debate more as just a friendly in-house debate between fellow believers. It does have implications. It does matter. But since this issue does not affect or alter the gospel in any way, I don't believe it's enough to, to, to separate genuine believers from fellowship and that our unity in the true gospel of Jesus Christ should be enough to, to, to hold together the forces that divide from infant baptism. So it doesn't need, you know, need to disfellowship or shun or you know, excommunicate those who see otherwise in this area. But we contend for the truth with our brothers, and we'll just keep going back and forth doing that. And that, that's okay. So let's get started with, you know, the covenantal teaching on infant baptism. Just trying to just hear from them what, what they believe. And like I said, I'm going to try and let them speak for themselves. Reformed theologians here. I've kind of collected and collated the views and explanations of some of the, the big voices, like R.C. Sproul, John Murray, John Calvin. Now, special note, there's a relatively new book, 2009, titled, you know, Baptism, Three Views, and it's really excellent, edited by David F. Wright. I commend that to you. And there, the infant baptism view was presented by Sinclair Ferguson. If you know who that is, he gives what all the contributors agree is just a a purely classical depiction of infant baptism. You're not going to get a better depiction and explanation and defense of infant baptism than from Sinclair Ferguson, if, if you know the name and, and uh, who he is. So when I do quote, I'm just going to quote largely from that chapter as a good standard. Now, this kind of loose organization, I'm just going to go through what they believe. We can loosely organize this around four points. First, let's talk about the symbolism of baptism, the symbolism of baptism. And thankfully, our covenantal brothers rightly reject the Catholic view of baptism where they believe baptism is, is a work that confers God's saving grace on someone. No, baptism, rather it's a sign of the gospel and its blessings, such as forgiveness and the rise to new life. And the reality of the sign comes not by the act of being baptized, but, but by the work of the Holy Spirit through faith. That it is ultimately symbolic, and, and to that we agree. And Ferguson says, quote, you know, baptism is a sign and seal of the union with Christ and fellowship with the Father given by the Spirit and received by us through faith, end quote. For the sake of being, you know, above board, that's page 89, in case you want to check that out. And here Ferguson and Covenantalists would agree, uh, uh, rather, uh, they would agree with what we established in our first study on baptism in Christ, that what, what's baptism primarily picturing? What's the essential symbolism? Our union with Christ and our our union with Christ and the baptism in the Holy Spirit as well. Ferguson agrees that this union with Christ is not identical 
to the sign of water baptism, but it's identified and expressed through it. And yeah, we, we totally agree. And that's what we kind of established in our first lesson. So I can appreciate how it seems like most covenantalists I've read, they get the core symbolism of baptism right. That's a symbol of our union with Christ and the saving benefits that result from that union, like regeneration and forgiveness. One big difference, though, is behind this question. Is that when should this sign be administered to a person? Before or after their conversion? Is the sign of baptism given to someone who has already been united to Christ by faith? Or is the sign given as a promise to those who might not yet be united to Christ by faith? And how they answer this question is directly tied to how they view the relationship between circumcision and baptism. So a second point we'll just call, you know, strong continuity between circumcision and baptism. Now explain that, but strong continuity, you know, Old Testament circumcision and then New Testament baptism. It really is the sticking point, as we'll see. But covenantalists, per what's called covenant theology, they have a really strong continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And this continuity extends to the signs of the covenant. So what's the sign of the old covenant? Circumcision. What's the sign of the new covenant? Baptism. And they're, they're going to see those as very, very, very similar. In short, Ferguson says, quote, circumcision means essentially what baptism means in the New Testament. So there you go. It's just like baptism has just totally almost one-to-one replaced circumcision. He sees in circumcision a covenant promise of regeneration and cleansing. And he sees in baptism the same covenant promise. And so what can be said of circumcision can be said of baptism. What's true of circumcision is true of baptism with few exceptions like that circumcision was only for infant males. A few exceptions like that. They often point to Romans 4.11, which says that Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised. And Ferguson, they, they take that verse and apply it to baptism. It doesn't mention baptism, but they're going to apply that to baptism. And Ferguson quotes this verse and says this, quote, Now, by what reasoning can this description of circumcision be transferred to baptism? Well, baptism functions in relationship to the new covenant in Christ in a matter analogous to the function of circumcision, in the Abrahamic covenant. In a word, baptism has the same symbolic significance in relationship to fellowship with God as did circumcision. End quote. Page 87. So it's the same essence, the same symbolic significance. Everything circumcision symbolized and communicated, they're going to say baptism symbolized and communicates the same thing. That's what I'm talking about with a strong continuity. It's the same sign as circumcision. Baptism is just in a different form. And so look, for Jew, for the Jew, circumcision did not mean they had to fellowship with God. That didn't mean you're saved just because you're circumcised, right? It meant they were part of the covenant community, which meant they had access to God's promises, but they had to obtain those promises by personal faith. Likewise, covenantalists believe baptism, that doesn't mean you have fellowship with God or union with Christ. 
It just signifies you're part of the new covenant community. You have access to God's promise of salvation. That promise must be accepted by faith to be saved. So they're saying like, you know, we're just talking the same thing here, just a different symbol. You can think of it this way. And in the old covenant, God made this promise. I will be your God. You'll be my people. Genesis 17. And then he gave, then gave them circumcision as a sign and seal of that promise. And it's kind of like an engagement ring signifying his promise. And so generation after generation would be circumcised. They would inherit that promise. But only those who really had faith would actually fulfill that promise or be in that promise. And likewise, in the new covenant, God gives, this is what they say, God gives baptism as his engagement ring promise of salvation in Christ. But only those of faith actually get the benefits of this promise. Now, you know, again, if you have questions, raise a hand. I hope you're going to stick with me. For a lot of you, I know this is going to be new and weird and confusing. You're using terms you've probably never heard of, you know, continuity, discontinuity, covenantalism. Like, it could be a lot for some of you. Like I said, I'm going to try and boil it down, get to the heart of it. And we're, we're right now just getting to the essential difference here. And so I think we need to just take this thought a little bit further because they're seeing this strong continuity between Old and New Covenant, circumcision, baptism. Like why? How do they support that? Let's keep going. So a third point here, right? The nature of baptism as a sign and seal. We'll just kind of explore that. The nature of baptism as a sign and seal. Here's a question. How does, how does baptism function as a sign and seal? This really is a dividing question. Ferguson himself points out in his chapter. Is baptism primarily a seal of faith? Meaning faith is already present in the person and then they're baptized as a seal of that faith. Or is baptism primarily a seal to faith? Meaning faith may or may not be present, but baptism is a promise of the gospel. Is it a seal of existing faith or a seal to faith? Existing, you say? Well, Ferguson and Covenantalists argue that baptism is a seal to faith. It's a promise of faith. It's not the seal of faith already present, but a seal to the promise of salvation by faith. This fits with their contention that, you know, baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. And like I said, all this is, is largely going to stem from this system, this theological system that they're coming to the table with called covenant theology. You're going to see how that, that drives this train you know, pretty obviously. So a quick little sidebar on covenant theology in case you've like never even heard of that before. Covenant theology, they basically believe in two or three of these covenants or agreements that God made with man. Starts off with the covenant of works. They say that God made with Adam in the garden, where God promised Adam, hey, eternal life for perfect obedience. Covenant of works. But Adam failed. He broke that covenant, resulted in the curse. But God made a second covenant called the covenant of grace, whereby eternal life would be offered entirely by God's grace. And this covenant of grace, it's really akin to the promise of salvation, you know, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now covenantalists believe that all of the biblical covenants are really just different 
expressions or administrations of this one covenant of grace. Now, the covenant of works, covenant of grace, those terms you won't find in Scripture. That's just an interpretation. But they're going to see, though, you know, the Noahic covenant, covenant with Noah, the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, new covenant, all through the lens of this covenant of grace that they believe God made with the Son and with man. And sometimes they add covenant of redemption. You know, these covenants that God made, you know, before time, and they're going to see all the biblical covenants through this lens. But they all fit under the umbrella of the covenant of grace. And so what that means is that they largely see the old covenant, you know, the Mosaic covenant, and the new covenant as being kind of the same substance. And it, that's kind of obvious then. If that's the case, well, it, what the sign of the old covenant, the sign of the new covenant, they'd probably be of the same substance too. And that's indeed what they believe, circumcision, baptism. You see how they're going to get to the, where they're going to merge those together in a sense, right? Again, this is what we're talking about with strong continuity. Let's go back to the belief that baptism is a seal to faith, meaning it's signifying a promise, a promise of the gospel. Where do they get this? Well, covenantalists admit that that's not coming from direct New Testament teaching. But it's, it's derived, it's deduced from covenant theology. It comes from just the continuity with the old covenant. Since the old covenant and the new covenant have so much continuity, we should expect baptism to function just like circumcision. That, that's a super basic premise from their continuity, right? I'll say that again. Since the old covenant and new covenant of so much continuity. They're just the two different aspects of the covenant of grace. We should expect baptism to function very similar, if not the same, to circumcision. That's a big claim. How are they... Well, let me put it this way. To understand that then, the leap they're going to make to baptism, let's just see well, how, how did circumcision function in the Old Testament. They're going to say... Baptism's functioning pretty much in the same way. Well, let's just go back. So how did circumcision function in the Old Testament? We don't disagree. Circumcision was the sign and seal of the Old Covenant. That's true. How did it function? Well, I'll read Genesis 17, verse 7. It's a chapter where God established this sign. God made a promise to Abraham. He says, Genesis 17, 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. So in the Abrahamic covenant, God promised to bless Abraham and his descendants. And then in Genesis 17, 11, it says that God gave circumcision as a sign of that covenant promise to bless. And this sign, as you know, is to be administered on infants is for Abraham, but then also for his seed And so it was to be administered even to the newborn on the eighth day. Clearly, for the infant receiving that sign, that did not mean they were saved. It didn't mean they were entering the fullness of God's promises. The promise of salvation still had to be received by faith. We agree on that. But the sign indicated one was in the covenant people of God and had access to God's promises by faith. Again, we agree with that too. The circumcision signaled you're in 
the covenant community, Israel. And that's how circumcision functioned. It didn't save the child. It did not signify the child had faith. It was just a token of promise and inclusion into the covenant community. But the covenantalist reasons that this fully parallels baptism in the new covenant. You know, because both are part of the covenant of grace. I'll say as a side note here, you know, logic and reason play pretty heavy into how they connect these dots. You're not going to find a lot of Bible verses or biblical cases for this. It's mostly a theological case, not an exegetical case. It's just from their history. You know, the Reformed tradition, and we're of that same stream, just not when it comes to covenant theology. But it's largely based on, or you might say, in a way, founded upon the Westminster Confession of Faith, which which we love in, in almost all respects. But remember, the Westminster Confession says this. This, I think, is in you know the first section. I think I think it's uh, chapter six. But it says, "quote The whole counsel of God is either expressly set down in Scripture, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture." End quote. And that just seems seem to, to find that they lean pretty heavy into this notion of deducing things from Scripture. And look, at times we all do that here and there, but that's, that can be dangerous. You know, how far you're going to take deduction as opposed to like, just give me a chapter and a verse. We're not going to take deduction too far. I think they do. But Ferguson argues, quote, baptism then, he says, by parity of reasoning is a seal as well as a sign of the covenant of grace, uh, uh, as the covenant grace of God in Christ, end quote, page 93. So really, baptism pictures the gospel. It's a symbol of God's work, and it contains in its sign just the promise. It's promising that, that God will justify by faith in Christ. And so like circumcision, it's not primarily a seal of existing faith, but a seal to future faith. It's a promise of salvation. It's an engagement ring from God showing his promise of grace. It's good. It's real. It can be trusted. And so if we can finish with the fourth point here, again, these loose points, I'm just organizing what they believe. Fourth point, just the move to infant baptism. The move to infant baptism. And at this point, you know, how they get to infant baptism, if, if you're tracking with me, if you're lost, you know, download and listen again. But how they get to infant baptism, I hope, is now clear that, look, God's old covenant promise was multi-generational. It was for you and your descendants. And the sign of that promise was given to infants, the the new generation. Well, look, the new covenant promise, multi-generational, it's for you and your children. The sign of that promise should be administered to infants as well. And there you have it. Since the divine covenants were made with believers and their seed, the same must be true of the new covenant. And since the New Testament does not explicitly say the sign of baptism is not for infants, we should just carry on the Old Testament practice. And that is true. The New Testament does not explicitly say baptism is not for infants, but their belief is, well, for that reason, we should just keep doing what they did in the Old Covenant with with circumcision. It doesn't tell us to stop. Why should we exclude our children from the new covenant community? Let's baptize them and bring them in. And Ferguson says, quote, of baptism, its primary function 
is not to symbolize our response to the promise of the gospel, but to signify and seal the gospel to which we are called to respond in lifelong faith and repentance. This is as applicable to infants as it is to others without compromising its significance, end quote, page 104. So you can put that together, and that's how you arrive at a non-Catholic practice of infant baptism. Let's add here, real quick, a biblical support. As you can see, so far, you know, the case for infant baptism has been largely theologically driven, right? It's not overwhelmingly exegetically driven, meaning like Bible verse. It's really a consequence of covenant theology, but they do claim some biblical support. And they acknowledge there's no direct New Testament teaching of infant baptism. There's no examples of infant baptism or children baptism even. But they often mention uh, the household baptism passages as a theoretical support. We kind of alluded to that when we studied these. Like Acts 16 verse 15, where you find Lydia and her household were baptized. Acts 16 verses 33 and 34, where the Philippian jailer and his household were baptized. 1 Corinthians 1 16, the household of Stephanus was baptized. And they contend that in these households, it doesn't say this, but they contend that, you know, infants or children were probably present. I mean, there's good odds that an infant or a child was present in these households. Some also point to the blessing of children by Jesus, showing how, you know, children were included in the covenant community. And then they almost always are going to point to Acts 2.39. This is kind of a a flag verse for them. Acts 2.39. Peter, after Pentecost, preaching. He says, For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And covenantalists take these words and essentially take them to, to be a repetition of God's promise in Genesis 17. Right, his promise is for you and your seed. And they say this promise, well, that's the covenant of grace. And it's for God's people and their children. He just says, you and your children, right? So Ferguson notes, quote, the children of believers receive the same promise as their parents and are therefore to be baptized, end quote. And since baptism is all about promise of the gospel, well, the, the children receive the same promise. Why shouldn't they be baptized? All in all, though, the case for infant baptism, it's largely theological. It's squarely based on covenant theology. You really see this in a a kind of a summary quote by the well-known older uh, theologian B.B. Warfield. He says this, quote, The argument in a nutshell is simply this, that God established his church in the days of Abraham and put children into it. They must remain there until he puts them out. He has nowhere put them out. They are still then members of his church and as such entitled to its ordinances. Among these ordinances is baptism, which standing in similar place in the new dispensation to circumcision in the old is like it to be given to children, end quote. So just kind of in sum to, to the covenantalist, what does baptism signify? Remember, that was one of our, like, our main questions. What does baptism signify? It does not signify faith or the presence of faith. It signifies the promise of the covenant of grace 
which is salvation by grace through faith. And like circumcision, baptism marks people out as members of the covenant community or visible church. As R.C. Sproul concludes, quote, what it does communicate is the reality of the promise of God to all who put their trust in him that they would receive the fullness of redemption that is promised in the gospel, end quote. So baptism, therefore, it's, just, it's a visible sign of the spoken promise of the gospel. That's the way it's common, commonly put. It's a visible sign of the promise that's spoken in the gospel. And that promise is for believers and their children, so they should be baptized as well and enter the covenant community parallel to the Old Testament. All right, so that'll do it for just hopefully giving you some understanding of what they believe and why. Now, this is not my camp, but if you have questions on that, what we've covered so far, I can try and do my best to, to answer them if you have them. So far, any questions from what we just covered? Marlene? Uh, most, you'll find some covenantalists who support immersion baptism. Most often, though, when they practice infant baptism, it's a sprinkle. And so they, they don't, they're not fully sold out to baptism being by immersion. Um, so typically, it's just a, a sprinkling. Yeah, Mason? So what Mason asks is, are, you know, it seems like they're mixing what he called dispensations or mixing ages old and new. Is that what they're doing? Well, yeah, that's what they're doing, but they wouldn't put it that way. Now, they are not dispensationalists. That's like this is the whole divide, right? Covenantalists and people who are lean or are of the dispensational stripe. They are not. And so, again, that's, they're seeing a lot more continuity between the old and the new. They think it's appropriate to bring that into the church, whereas non-covenantalists or dispensationalists would say, no, actually, that was for then, this is for now. And that, that's where the divide is in many respects. All right, we're going to keep going. If you have questions, you can always just throw up a hand. But with our remaining time, though, we're going to try and cover a critique of infant baptism, and at least why we here at this church don't practice it and don't believe in it. So let's move on to that now. And covenantalists get the core symbolism of baptism right. It symbolizes our union with Christ and our regeneration. And they believe that for adults, it's a sign of faith. Or at least R.C. Sproul says that. But for infants, baptism is not a sign of faith. It does not signify union with Christ, but merely the promise of that union. And to me, that's just an inconsistent leap that is being driven by covenant theology more than Scripture. And it is just a, it's a consequence of the radical continuity between the Old and New Covenant. And so that's really what we need to address, this continuity between the Old and New Covenant. So again, I'll, I'll loosely organize the critique here with maybe three points. First, discontinuity between the Old and New Covenants. Discontinuity between the Old and New Covenants. Now, they believe the Old and New Covenants are, are the same in their essence, And so the signs of these covenants should function the same. But I just disagree with that premise. That baptism is the sign of the new covenant. That's true. 
We believe that. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant. But it does not function the same way as circumcision did for the old covenant. So let's just start by establishing some of the points of discontinuity between the old and the new covenant. The new covenant has a new mediator, Christ, as opposed to Moses. New covenant comes with the indwelling Holy Spirit. Whereas the letter kills, the Spirit gives life. And the new covenant accordingly gives salvation. This is why Hebrews speaks of the new covenant as being superior. This is why the old covenant was replaced. You read the book of Hebrews, it's pretty clear. The new covenant is not just a reworking or revising of the old covenant. We're just like new symbols. Yeah, instead of circumcision, let's use water. No, it's entirely new. The old has become fulfilled. It's obsolete. It is replaced by the new. Furthermore, it has to be appreciated that the old covenant was fundamentally an ethnic and national covenant. Understand that? It was fundamentally an ethnic and national covenant. It was made with a physical people, that God would unconditionally bless this nation and be the God of this nation. And that promise, I will be your God, you will be my people. Who was that made with? It was made with Abraham and his physical seed. This corporate promise was made to, on one level, national Israel. And the ethnic nature of the Old Covenant is seen in the fact that only males receive the sign of circumcision because lineage or membership in this national group was through male headship. But the new covenant is different. It's not an ethnic or national promise. It's for all the nations, Jews, Gentiles, brought together under one mediator, Christ. And so the sign of this covenant, baptism, is for males and females. And that's because you must enter this covenant not corporately, not nationally, not by your parents or family, but individually. You can't enter this new covenant by your parents or by your spouse. You have to come by your own personal faith in Christ. You can already see you know, the discontinuities are, are piling up. Let's add another. The people of the old covenant were a mixed body of saved and unsaved. You know, God's covenant Establish an ethnic people of God. They received the sign of circumcision. That didn't mean they were saved, right? We get that. But it said they're part of the covenant community, which was the nation of Israel. And people were born into this covenant, and they received its national benefits just by birth. And if they wanted salvation, real salvation, well, that came individually through faith, of course. But the old covenant itself, which was made with Israel, was not a saving covenant. You could be a member of the old covenant and not be saved, right? There's many examples of that. But what the people really needed for salvation was not just circumcision, but what? What the Old Testament calls circumcision of the heart, like in Deuteronomy eleven sixteen and, and elsewhere. And by nature, though, the old covenant community was a mixed body of saved and unsaved. Joey, question or comment?
Yeah, that's a good point. It's, we can maybe address that later with kind of the, the secondary issues. That's really more of a, it's a good point, a strong secondary, you know, inconsistency. If you actually recall in that quote from B.B. Warfield, he said, they're, they're uh, in the church, even in the Old Testament, they're the people of God, therefore they're entitled to the ordinances. By the way, if you couldn't hear Joy's question, you're like, covenantalists have their kids baptized per that ordinance. Why don't they let them take communion? Most of them do not let their infants or young children take communion until they're older. And that is actually, in my opinion, a glaring inconsistency. If they're of the covenant people, like B.B. Warfield said, they're entitled to the ordinances, but they limit that to baptism and not the Lord's Supper. I've not heard a good explanation of that, but I'm sure they, they have one. I don't know what it would be. Uh, to me, that's just an inconsistency. Yeah, but that's a good point. But for now, you know, the point we're making here is that the new covenant is different. So the old covenant was a mixed body, saved and unsaved. You, you could be in the old covenant and not be saved. You're part of the nation of Israel. You're in that covenant community because it's an ethnic community. That doesn't mean you're saved necessarily. Does that make sense? Not so with the new covenant. It is not a mixed body. Now look, the visible church is a mixed body. Of course, saved, unsaved. But look, the visible church is not the true new covenant community. The invisible church, so the true church is the new covenant community, the real body of Christ. Unbelievers have no part in the new covenant or its blessings. The new covenant is by definition a saving covenant. And so an unbeliever can be in the visible church, of course. But look, if you don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, just because you're part of a church body, that doesn't mean you're in the new covenant. You are not in the new covenant unless you're born again and you've got the indwelling Holy Spirit. So since the new covenant operates on a spiritual level, not an ethnic level, its membership is exclusive to those who are born again. So all in all, though, you're seeing there, there are some significant points of discontinuity between the old and new covenants. You can't just flatten them together and call them, you know, two expressions of the covenant of grace. At least I see enough differences here. Uh, how that One's called old, one called new for a reason. And it's been replaced for a reason. There's enough different here. And so we should not expect the sign of the new covenant to function in the same way as the sign of the old covenant. Shouldn't take that for granted. And the old covenant sign, circumcision, was an ethnic national marker. It signified that you're part of Israel, the people of God. It didn't mark existing faith. It marked the promise of faith. That's true. The circumcision was a promise to faith. I agree with that. But the new covenant sign is not an ethnic marker. It's a salvation marker. It's a symbol of new birth. Even they agree it's a symbol of new birth. And this new covenant only applies to believers. Therefore, the sign should only apply to believers. You know, there is one very legitimate parallel between between baptism and circumcision. It's found in Colossians 2. You can open there if you want real quick. Paul, Paul himself does draw one parallel between baptism and and circumcision in the Old Testament. Let's see how he let's see how he makes the parallels. Not not much said about those parallels in the New Testament. But here's one very clear instance. Colossians two, eleven and twelve. 
He says that in him, Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. No doubt Paul is, is really joining together baptism and circumcision here as signifying our, our death to old self, the cutting away of the old self, uh, which is then followed by a rise to new life. So he is very clearly making a parallel, baptism and circumcision. But what circumcision is he talking about? He is not talking about physical circumcision because he says, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's talking about spiritual circumcision, which was not uncommon in the Old Testament. It's talking about what the prophets talked about. You need heart circumcision, aka you need new birth. And that makes perfect sense, though, this parallel, because baptism signifies the spiritual reality of the new birth. And that's a perfect parallel, not to physical circumcision, but to spiritual circumcision. That heart circumcision signified regeneration and faith. It excluded infants. The same goes with baptism. It's actually a great parallel. Hopefully you can see, though, just from this first kind of loose point, there's enough discontinuity between the Old and New Covenants that we should not just state or assume that the signs of the covenants function in the same way. They don't. And to the contrary, we should expect baptism to be different in the same manner that the new covenant is different. I expect the sign of the new covenant to function differently because the new covenant functions differently. But let's keep going though. The second point here, I'm just going to call it, you know, more on the new covenant for lack of a catchier title. It's more on the new covenant. And you turn to Jeremiah 31. That the new covenant the more you study it, understand it in the Old and New uh, Testament, is completely exclusive to the saved, unlike the Old Covenant. Let's go to Jeremiah 31. There's a couple good condensed summary passages of the New Covenant in the Old Testament. Let's read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Notice just in this passage how different the new covenant is from the old. Verse 32, he says, It's not like the old covenant. They broke it. He's going to make a new one, and he says, It's not like the one they broke. This covenant though, this new one, it's not going to be broken because God's going to actually enable his people to keep this covenant, 
It's another reason this is new and and not in continuity. God's going to enable his people to keep it, to not break it. How? He's going to give them what they need. New birth, a new nature, a new heart, heart circumcision. With this covenant, he's going to actually give them what they need to keep it. Verse 33, he's going to do that by putting his law on their hearts. He's going to write it in their very heart. And that the law keeping of this people will come internally from their very natures uh, as being a new covenant member. Also, verse 34, all covenant members are going to know the Lord. That wasn't true in the old covenant. Not all old covenant members knew the Lord. But every new covenant member is going to know the Lord. They're going to be saved. They're going to be forgiven. Here and elsewhere, there's no concept or category of an unsaved new covenant member. New covenant member who's not born again. Or like the parallel in Ezekiel 36 says, you know, new covenant member who doesn't have a new heart, who doesn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. There's no concept of that in the Bible. And God's going to do all this unilaterally for his chosen people so that they might truly be his people and he might truly and forever be their God. This is going to be a covenant of salvation. He's going to form a body with a covenant of salvation. So hopefully you can see what I mean when I say the new covenant is a saving covenant. That God built the means and the mechanism of salvation into the covenant. And to be in the old covenant did not mean salvation. It meant ethnic identity, the receiving of God's national promises. But the new covenant does not function like this, contrary to covenant theology. To be in the new covenant means to be saved. So let's just reiterate here. Now, who are members of the new covenant? Who are members of the new covenant? Only those who are united to Christ by faith and have received the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't you agree? That's crystal clear. Children of believers, they might be part of the visible church. Yes. But if they don't have new birth, if they have not been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they're not yet a part of Christ's actual body. They're not part of the invisible church. They're not in the new covenant yet. We studied 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We're made a part of this body by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who places us into Christ's body. So unless they are baptized by the Spirit and dwelt by the Spirit, they might be in the visible church, but they're not part of the new covenant yet. And I think covenantalists wrongly flatten that the new covenant community with the visible church, I don't see that. Here's two big questions. How do you become, you know, first, how do you become a member of the old covenant? So that's the how question now. How do you get in to the old covenant? By birth. Just by your first birth. You're born into it. You know, converts could enter and they'd be circumcised. But, you know, that didn't even require faith. You didn't actually have to have saving faith. You just had to be circumcised, do this thing, and it symbolized your, your ethnic identity. You're identifying with the people of God. Faith is not required to enter the old covenant. It's not a saving covenant. It's just national identity. And that explains why the sign of that covenant was administered at birth. Because you enter by birth. It doesn't require faith. Let's give it to babies. You enter the covenant by your first birth. Right? Now, second question. How do you become a member of the new covenant? How do you become a member of the new covenant? It's not by your first birth. It's by your second birth. 
The only way in is through faith. It's exclusively entered through faith. The faith of others won't help you. The salvation of others won't help you. The salvation of your parents does not grant you entrance into the new covenant. You have to approach one way only is through the door of faith, whereby you receive a new heart and you're filled with the Spirit. And this likewise explains, though, why the sign of the new covenant should be administered at salvation. The sign should accompany the second birth. You enter by the second birth, well, the sign should accompany your entrance into the covenant, which is not first birth, it's second birth. Faith is required. To be in the new covenant requires a confession of faith in Christ, and that's precisely why infants are excluded. They, they cannot make a profession of faith in Christ. The people should only receive the sign of the new covenant when they experience their second birth or salvation by faith alone. And Bruce Ware, one of my favorite authors, he writes the believer's baptism position in that book I mentioned. He says this, quote, In brief, the credo-baptist position is that baptism, the sign of the new covenant, should only rightly be administered to believers in Christ Jesus. Because by its very nature, the new covenant incorporates exclusively those who have turned from their sin through faith in Christ's atoning work on their behalf, end quote. That was on page 41. So Pado-Baptists in turn take the continuity of the covenants too far. And again, that's not because that's what scripture teaches. It's because of covenant theology. They're reading too much into this covenant of grace. They're failing to see the progressive nature of the covenants, but they're just not the same. So why don't we baptize infants? Well, in short, they can't repent of their sins. They can't believe in Christ to be saved through the gospel. Therefore, they're not united to Christ by faith. They don't receive the Holy Spirit. They're not in the new covenant. And so the sign of the new covenant, it's, it's not meant for them. Baptism must correspond to the second birth, not the first birth. As a side note, that excludes infants. It does not exclude children. If a child is old enough to make a profession of faith, they can be baptized. We're not against children baptism, just infant meaning those who are not able to make a profession of faith. But this is the issue. This is where the debate and divide really exists. It's the level of continuity and discontinuity between the old and new covenants. And I've just never been convinced by how covenantalists, they read the Old Testament into the New Testament through the lens of these covenants, which aren't, which aren't even mentioned in Scripture. Covenant of works, covenant of grace. There is some continuity, continuity that, that God's plan of salvation is unified, but there's significant discontinuity as well. And at least I'll say where you land on this issue, the relationship between the old and new covenants, that's pretty much just going to determine where you land on infant baptism. That's just kind of how it is. To, to wrap it up, though, I'll give you just a third and final point where we'll just cover some of these you know, secondary issues. But first, Rod, question, comment? Right. Somewhere along the line, I get up to that age where they understand that absolutely. Is that as quite assured that infants have been really saved under that covenant? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So Rod's basically asking, like, so 
what does it do? <laughs> like if they're baptizing their infants, they, they do not say it saves them. It does not save them. They also say it does not guarantee their salvation. They also say it doesn't make them technically more likely to be saved. But that's actually just kind of answer that question. That was my, my next point with these secondary issues. I have four like quick little secondary points here. The first is, you know, what is the value of infant baptism? What's the value of infant baptism? And just exactly what Rod is saying, like, they believe that for infants, baptism is not a sign of faith. It's a sign to faith. It's really holding out the promise of the gospel. The promise of salvation in the gospel. That's always just seemed rather pointless to me because unbaptized people have the exact same promise. Like they, they, all have, they all have access to the same problems. Whether you're baptized or not baptized as an infant, you have access to the same promise of salvation in the gospel through the word preached. So like what is baptism actually doing for that infant? Is it somehow making it like more likely for them to be saved? Most covenantalists don't approach those dangerous waters. In reality, that the promise of the gospel is for all people. But that's not what's being signified in baptism, the promise of the gospel. Baptism is not a sign of the gospel promise offered, but the the gospel promise received. And I've only ever heard these vague, hazy, fuzzy explanations of what baptism actually does for the infant. It's just some kind of token, but I've never understood or been convinced of the value of it, especially since the unbaptized child or infant has access to like all the same promises that baptism is supposed to give them. Promises are for everybody. I guess if the covenantalist was to be consistent, we really should be baptizing all unbelieving people, adults, your spouse, your coworker, because if baptism signifies just the promise of salvation in the gospel, why don't we baptize everybody so they have access to that promise or, or not? I don't know, but I see an inconsistency there. A second sub-point, we're going to try and do this in a little bit of time here. Now, I think they really misuse Acts 2.39. You can turn there. Remember I mentioned that's like a a flagship verse for them, Acts 2.39. I just think they get that wrong, Acts 2.39. Let's turn there quickly. And this is their absolute go-to passage. To them, seemingly confirm that that baptism fits into the, the covenant of grace stream Again, Peter preaching, he's offering the gospel to the crowd who's just been convicted by his preaching. He says, for the, verse 39, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And they point out Peter's offering this promise, not just for them, but also for their children. And they identify this promise as the covenant of grace. They're really reading Genesis 17, 11 into this promise. And since this promise is for them and their children, well, so is the sign of that promise, baptism, just like the Old Testament, just like the Old Covenant. But I don't think they're reading this in context. First, you know, what's the promise Peter is talking about? Verse 39, this promise for you and your children. What promise is he talking about? Well, verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise pertains specifically to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which this crowd just witnessed at Pentecost. They saw this crazy thing, 
And Peter's saying, this can be yours. You can receive the power and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit by repentance and faith. This is not just some generic, vague, old covenant promise being brought forward by Peter. It's the promise of new birth by the Spirit. You go read Acts 1, 4 through 5, really just confirms this, that Jesus told the disciples to wait for the promise of the Spirit. And Pentecost is, is the promise of the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit. And Peter's letting them know that the long-awaited promise of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant have come. And this promise can be yours if you repent and believe. Now, to whom does this promise extend? He says, you, your children, all who are far off. This promise is not just for the people listening. It's also for their their children. Not just for the children, also all who are far off. This is a universal promise. Covenantalists, they, they seem to in a way ignore the last part where he says, and it's also for all who are far off. They make much of the phrase, for your children. No, but what of this phrase, for all who are far off? The fact that Peter doesn't stop with, and your children, shows he's not merely thinking about the continuation of the old covenant, where the children of believers receive the sign of the covenant. The point he's making is that this promise of the Spirit is for everybody. It's per the Great Commission, right? The new covenant promise is for all generations, all peoples, including Gentiles. That is all who are far off. That's, That's the world. And so as such, this promise should be broadcast to all people, every nation. That's another point of discontinuity, way, uh, discontinuity, by the way, between the Old and New Covenant. We're supposed to broadcast the promise of salvation to all people. So if covenantalists want to read covenant theology into this passage and see baptism as merely the promise of the gospel, again, to be consistent, they shouldn't just baptize you and your children They should be baptizing you and your children and all who are far off. And if children are not required to to profess faith to be baptized, why should all who are far off have to have faith to be baptized, right? If baptism is just the promise of the gospel, we should be baptizing their children and then just everybody, all who are far off. Uh, But that is not what Peter is saying. He's merely stating that the promise of receiving the Holy Spirit through faith is open to all people, whoever believes and whomever God calls. Really, as he alludes to in verse 38, and as we'll see next week, it's really only those people who repent and believe should be, therefore, baptized. Well, at this point, I think we're out of time. More can be said and will be said next week. You know, there's two other little subpoints here, which we're going to just dovetail into next week. It's number three, a lack of biblical teaching. And number four, a lack of biblical examples. With the infant baptism position. It just suffers from this very loud silence in scripture. That the baptizing of infants is never once mentioned in scripture. This connection to circumcision is never directly taught in scripture. There's, there's not a single example of infant baptism in scripture. Again, to be fair, infant baptism is also never forbidden in scripture. That's true. And there, there is some silence on both sides of the debate. Which is, again, that's why we show grace and charity to those who disagree. But I'm simply not convinced that the the theological case they make for this practice is sound. And on the flip side, when you actually study what the Bible does say about baptism in the New Testament, 
as the sign of the new covenant. It supports believer's baptism every step of the way. And that is what we will study next week. So in a sense, our our study into believer's baptism next week is really the second part to this. And they they kind of come together to show, well, this is why we believe in a believer's baptism, which also explains why we don't believe in an infant baptism. So you will get that next time. All right, well, I guess kind of sound like a broken record, but we're out of time. We're over time. Any more questions, then come see me after. I got to pray for us to be dismissed, and then you can come see me after. Unless it's, you want, you want to jump in real quick, Don? Yeah, so what Don's saying is some explain that in baptizing their kids, they're, they're expressing a trust or hope that God will. And that, that's fine. That's why we do baby dedications, right? It's not really doing anything for the child. It's more of a parent dedication. Uh, and I'm, I'm totally fine with that. But I don't think you mix the symbol of baptism, the ordinance of baptism with that just for a hope of kid to be saved. You pray for your kid. You want to dedicate them, dedicate them. But we're talking about an ordinance Christ left for the church. We need to get that right, and they don't. So, But uh, yeah, that's a good point, and that's what some might say in, in support. All right, guys, let me pray for us. Our God in heaven, we, we're grateful for a study in your word, and that's an evening of a uh, little bit diving deep, but we're still thankful. Your word is clear and true, and we, again, we're just aiming to, to get it right. Your word is simple enough to be understood by a child, but deep and profound, and it, it can take and entire lifetimes to, to know it and still not reach the bottom. And that's just the richness of your word. Sometimes that can, can complicate things, and, and sometimes even genuine believers can struggle to agree. We're thankful for grace that you extend to us, that we might extend to others on these non-saving matters. Uh, we thank you for the, just the symbol of baptism, something we do agree with with our brethren, that we have a, a great picture of union with Christ, what he has done for us through his death on the cross, what, what he does give to us. We know that's what we need, not merely an outer symbol, but an inner renewal, a heart circumcision where we're united to Christ and and brought to new life. We we want to remember that symbol. Whether we apply it to infants or not, we know for us uh, what a great picture of what our Savior has done for us. So may we keep that in mind always and and still find a way to to worship as we study your word, not just have an academic exercise. So we we praise you for the gift of baptism and the, the sign that it is for us. Until next time, keep us in your word and will. In Christ's name we pray, amen.